Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Welcome to Inspire Campfire. I am your host, Scott Wurzbacher, and this is a podcast about listening to the voice inside that calls us to adventure. We've had some amazing guests with a broad range of stories of extraordinary adventures. Today, I'm excited to come at this from a slightly different angle because so many of us hear that voice that calls us to adventure, but we also hear another voice that tells us why we shouldn't listen. Our guest is going to help us overcome that second voice by helping us put a practical plan in place so we can turn our dreams into reality. I feel so lucky to have Michael Lennington with me today. Michael is co-author of the best-selling book, The 12-Week Year, which has been an absolutely fundamental resource for me both personally and professionally. I can credit this book for helping me to plan and execute so many of my own personal and business adventures. Michael is a leading expert in the application of execution systems, and he spends his time training and coaching clients, as well as writing about leadership and business. He is a co-host of the podcast, Aligned Life Pro, and along with his co-author, Brian Moran, they just released another book called Uncommon Accountability, which I just finished reading a few weeks ago, and it is groundbreaking. I am so excited to talk with him today about how we can listen to that voice that calls us to adventure, turn that call into a vision, and then create a plan to actually make that vision a reality. Michael, welcome to the campfire. Thank you for those kind words, Scott. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, I am so, so excited. To have you um, just, you know, it's just super fun to be on here talking with you. I've been using the 12 week year um, personally and with my team for like six years now. And it has been just such a game changer for us and to be able to, to, to build the business into what we wanted to build it into, but then also be able to use it to, to frankly, like set personal goals and create adventures and then execute those adventures. So yeah, um, if we can just start, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your background and, and you know, what, what life looks like for you right now. Yeah, so I, I was born and raised on a farm in a very sparsely populated county up in northern Michigan, and I had a great idyllic childhood. So I kind of grew up in the woods. My mom and dad, you know, I'd leave in the morning, go out in the woods, mess around, and I would come home till dinner. So, you know, nowadays people would be calling the police if their kid was gone that long in the day. But you know, it was really great, a lot of freedom. And so I kind of grew up with that that sense of adventure and, and did stuff that, that I just felt like doing all the time. And, and it, was, it was like living in heaven. But uh, it was pretty small. So if I wanted to do much other than, um, you know, mow people's lawns, I had to get out of the out of the county. And so I, I you know, I, I started my life adventure and went through uh, getting my undergrad degree, my master's degree, got into consulting, um, traveled all over the states and then eventually to Europe, Middle East a little bit. And um, so I've done a little bit of that. I uh, really had focused most of my consulting life, though, um, straight not not on, not intentionally just by happenstance, I suppose, but on helping um, individuals and organizations to 
accomplish more than they than they normally would. And so that's been sort of the, the theme of my professional career. And so Brian Moran, my co-author, and I met about 25, no, no, it's more than that. It's just, I'm getting old. It's about 35 years ago. Um, yeah. And we met um, in, a, in a consulting firm out in California that was, was um, called Send Delaney and they uh, they helped their clients to execute more effectively. So Brian and I were were um, working together there. That's where we met. And then um, they were taken over by Arthur Anderson. I went with Arthur Anderson to Europe and Brian, my, my co-partner um, in, in uh, 12 week year, he, he went on to uh, a career with different companies and then he came back uh, to Michigan. I came back to Michigan separately and we just reconnected and, and sort of created the uh, what we call the execution company and we wrote the 12-week year and, and now uh, on common accountability so that's sort of my life story more than people want to hear you always fast forward to that part if, if, <laughs> if it gets a little boring but. yeah and so you call home taylorsville kentucky now taylorsville yeah it's yeah. it's about 30 minutes south of louisville yeah and so i want to i want to get into both of your books um but before we do you know i think this is cool like you're you spend um majority of your time coaching kind of entrepreneurial clients and and business clients like this is kind of a fun one today because we're gonna sort of um take this into the world of adventure right Mm -hmm. and uh, and how we can use these tools not just in our business and our in our career lives but in our you know our recreational and our fun lives and you know kind of our our big dreams and and pursuits um and as we were talking before we hit the record button, you were telling me about some of your adventures and, and how they've shaped you. So you know, before we get into the 12 week year, like, especially you, you talked about one in particular when you were 12 years old, it's like, where does that adventure voice play a role in your life? Well, like I said, I, when I was very young, I, I lived with a lot of freedom in terms of how I spent my time and what I did. And I was you know, always outside messing around. Um, but my brother uh, had gone to Vietnam so this dates me, but they call me Boomer for a reason. Um, my brother had gone to Vietnam and uh, <clears throat> he'd gotten out of Vietnam. I was discharged and he came back, um, bought a Volkswagen convertible um, and then took me in that Volkswagen convertible to Mexico, uh, Guatemala, and British Honduras uh, for about two and a half months in the summer of 1970, late summer, early fall. Um, and we uh, just camped in a tent. We, we, you know, we didn't, we stayed in a hotel once. I remember that. Cause it was like the, the super luxury. It was, it was eight cents a night for the hotel. So it wasn't exactly the most expensive yeah. hotel I've ever stayed in, but we, uh, you know, ate all sorts of food, met all sorts of people, um, you know, enjoyed the ocean, the jungle, you know, the temples and, and all this stuff that's done, the, the, uh, the Mayans and the old Mexicans and the Aztecs and all those guys that are, they built uh, all that stuff down there. So it was just, it was just an amazing, amazing, experience and i was with my brother which meant that i didn't have any parental authority so we did just did we just did stuff and you know <laughs> yeah. it was great it's great you know that is to me that's so idyllic it's you know the v you said the vw convertible mm-hmm. yeah vw convertible going into mexico and central america like that i just i you can see that it's just like that's got a movie written all over it right there yeah i yeah. love that and so like you know at 12 years old was there a decision or did he just say, Hey, we're going like, was there a voice that called you to adventure and at 12 years old? You know, that's a great question. I, I think, um, Vietnam affected different people, different ways. And when Andy came back, my brother's name was Andy. When he came back, um, <clears throat> I think he just needed to clear his head. And so I think he decided that I, he funded the trip himself. So he didn't take me along. So dad would pay for it. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, <laughs> but, but that, that might've been a possibility, but I think it was just, he, he didn't want to be alone, but he also, 
just wanted to kind of be alone. So he figured he could take me and that would kind of accomplish both of those things. So, mm-hmm. um, and it was great. I mean, he spoke Spanish. I didn't. So we were, we were living with people in, in their homes and we, we camped out in people's pastures and, and uh, it, was, it was, I got to know a lot of folks. Um, we weren't staying in hotels. We weren't staying in you know, the, the resorts. We were, we were in the middle of Mexico and Central America and it was, uh, it was amazing. Yeah. Wow. Well, so that, that trip itself sounds like another whole nother conversation we may have to have at some point. I love it. And then, so there's been a whole series of smaller adventures that you've taken along the way in terms of living in different cities and things, but, but you've also taken on this adventure of, of helping businesses and helping people. And, you know, there was one thing I, when I was looking at sort of the, the bio section of uh, uncommon accountability for you, there was something that jumped out at me because there's this voice that calls you to your version of adventure. And I'm going to quote Mm -hmm. what the bio said. It said, what has driven Michael's work since the beginning is helping others overcome the thinking and action barriers that keep them from accomplishing what they're capable of. And I love that because that's what this podcast it's about. It's like, you know, we hear that call to adventure, but then there's always these barriers that stop us from doing it. So can we just start right there and talk about that quote in your bio? Yeah. So, so it's serendipity. It's not intention, but through the course of my professional career, almost every job I've ever had has been um, focused on helping individuals and organizations to get, to get more things done or accomplish their goals. And so, um, when, when uh, you talk about adventure, I was just thinking that um, not to sound too philosophical, but I think everybody sort of has a life adventure. A life is an adventure, right? And, you know, you, you um, calculate risks, you think through um, what the benefits might be, and then you make choices. And a lot of times people will give into the risks before they give into the benefits. And I think that's where we, uh, you know, we can help people. Brian and I both both um, Brian and my business partner, both not, both of us work on that. We're helping our clients to do that very thing. In fact, one of the stories we're talking about adventures, and I won't remember this if I don't say it now. It's a little bit of a non sequitur, but <laughs> you know, I was thinking about adventures and how life is an adventure. And one of one of the things that I would say about our book is that um, we've been really blessed with the stories that have come back from from the people who've read our book. That and, and it doesn't work for everybody. Some people, you know, say it's just fluff, and that's I get it. Yeah, you can say that about a book. You can say about pretty much any book. So a lot of folks have had huge, huge results from it. And we don't know about most of them because they just read the book and they do something. But one of, one of the folks who read the book um, had read the book when he was in a homeless shelter. And um, he, he was, uh, you know, inspired by the book and he ended up, you know, I was running his own business, but he, but he credits the 12 week year with helping him set goals to get out of where he was to get, to get to where he needed to be. And, um, you know, that, that's an adventure. <laughs> that is, that's Absolutely. a major life adventure. And it's, and it's taking on, um, you know, risks and, and uncertainty and, and willing to do the stuff it takes to do what you need to do. And, and I, that was probably my favorite story of all the folks who've sent stuff in is, is his story. I, I love that so much. And, and you're, it, and it has impacted a lot of people. It's impacted me and every single person on my team. And so many of my peers, I mean, again, on my business, we've been using the 12 week year as a fundamental foundation for how we sort of plan out every 12 weeks of a calendar year to set our goals and, and actually make things happen. I mean, and I'm definitely a testimony that this stuff works. So it, to, to me, you're very humble. It is not fluff. This is, <laughs> this is good practical stuff. So, um, can we talk about for, for folks that aren't familiar, can you just give us a quick overview? What, what does it mean to do to work a 12 week year? Yeah. So Brian and I, when we first started working with our clients, um, we went in there as consultants uh, to, to give them the ideas they needed to, to accomplish their goals. And what we figured out pretty quickly was most of our clients, if not all of them, had a lot of great ideas already. 
and we focus on helping them execute their best ideas. And so the 12 week year concept was based upon one of the barriers that we found for a lot of our clients, um, which was the way that they thought about time. And one of the problems we had early on was that we could get their attention um, sometimes in the year, but other times we couldn't. And depending upon when their fiscal year ended, we get their attention, right? So we, one of our clients um, was a company called New York Life, and they have a, a fiscal year that ends at the end of June. And um, that's when they'd have a peak in activity. They'd have a peak in activity in May and June. And then we work with a company like Mass Mutual that's at the end of the year, at the end of December, and they'd have a peak in activity in November, December. And so we just thought well, that's really weird that the annual cycle creates this kind of burst of stuff. And then the rest of the year, it's kind of below that level. So we really worked on how, what was going on and realized that it was just the, the belief that my success and my failure hangs in the balance in a 12 month cycle. And so that's great at the last couple of months of the year, but for the rest of the year, you're kind of working at a lower level than you're capable of. And so we just decided to reframe the, the year and look at 12 weeks instead of 12 months because everybody runs a 12-week year at the end of the year, right? Um, so we just thought, well, let's just get them to do that across the year, but without the stress and burnout. Because if you're behind your goals, then it gets crazy at the end of the year. And, and you, you know, you're missing vacation, the holiday times and the time with family because it's, it's packed with holidays too, right? December and November. So that, that kind of unproductive stress, we worked on getting rid of that and not to duplicate that four times a year. But, but the thing is, if you're on track at the end of March, you're on track at the end of June, you're on track at the end of September, then you're not as stressed out in the last three months of the year. So um, that's what we did. And, and it, it was a simple concept. Uh, somebody some, once said, hey, you just, thank you. You rebranded the calendar and sold it back to us. But it, it's a different way of thinking about time because the belief that we're successful in failure every 12 months is, is erroneous. We're, we succeed and fail every day, really. I mean, every moment we're making choices that are good or bad. So, you know, that annual, that annual execution cycle is really unproductive because it creates the sense there's a lot of time to get things done. And really, you know, we don't have a lot of time. Time's the, the only resource we don't get more of and it passes the same for all of us and we all get the same amount of it. So, you know, it's one we should pay most attention to. Yeah. And, you know, I think for me, one of the things is like, you guys said this in the book, but it struck me is like, it's, it's really hard to look at like, where am I going to be and what am I going to have accomplished in 12 months? Right. Yeah. But it is pretty easy to see like, what can I do in the next three months? It's just easier to visualize that. And that's kind of a core concept of the book. It's like, you know, we can control that. And then I think the other thing is, is that, you know, if, like you said, if you don't hit your goals in that three months, like, you get a chance to reset. So you essentially you get four chances per year instead mm -hmm. of like w one chance. You know, I right. think when we set goals for a year and we get to a point in the year where we're like, okay, we're not going to hit those goals. It's like, you know, now you're waiting for a whole nother year yeah. rather than yeah. just getting that opportunity to reset. I love that. And that's what works so well for our team. Yeah. People check out sometimes because they're not going to hit their, hit their numbers. And, and, you know, if they're in a selling system, um, they'll start sandbagging sometimes, you know, so it makes the problem even worse. Yeah. So, you know, the thing is, is that when you're thinking in annualized cycles, you're right. You don't have enough information to plan at the action level detail that far out because you don't know what the economy is going to be like. You don't know what society is going to be like the culture. Yeah. You don't know anything you know, what the pandemic, you know, next pandemic is. And so, you know, we, we have entered a new brave new world, I guess. But the thing is, is that if you plan in 12 month cycles, it's hard to get to the detail. But in a 12 week cycle, 
there's less volatility so you can plan to the tactic level. And the other thing that happens in your mind, if you miss the numbers in a quarterly system, so we missed our numbers first quarter, we're probably not happy, but we're thinking I'll make it up next quarter. And that's erroneous because you can't ever make it up next quarter because all of the capacity you had this last 12 weeks is gone forever. It's never coming back. You get, you get having a great next 12 weeks and, and get back on track, get, you know, great next quarter, get back on track. But you could have had two great quarters, not just one, right? And so all the capacity you had and then all the opportunities, if, if you're in a business that's at all competitive, all the opportunities that you have in front of you this 12 weeks, if you don't act on them, they're going to be, be served by somebody else. So you lose those folks. And so this, this belief that you can make it up next quarter is, is fallacy. And that's one of the problems that gets, you know, like you think you get a great fourth quarter and have a great year. No, you had a great fourth quarter. It happened to hit your annual numbers, but you could have had four of those. Yeah. And one of the things, like, as you were talking, the word that sort of popped in my mind was procrastination. And I feel like this system helps people eliminate procrastination. Yeah. You know, it, it, it does, it, it helps. It helps. Um, there's a lot of things that get in the way of people executing and most of it's between your ears, but, um, that that concept that there's a lot of times what we try to attack with the 12-week year so that you don't feel like, hey, I can just put this off and I'll get, get it done later. You realize if I'm going to hit my goals, if I own my 12-week goals, um, I don't have much choice but to, to take the actions that I know I need to take to hit it. So you, you have you have greater urgency and there's a less, there's less desire to waste your time. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the questions that I've asked pretty much every guest that's been on the podcast um, up to this point is, you know, as they kind of talk through their adventures, most of these are, are folks that listened to the voice that called them to adventure and they crossed the threshold and they got after that thing and they came back and they were so happy that they did it. And the question is, you know, what, what were some of the fears that you had to overcome and what advice do you have for people and how to get over those fears? And I mean, an an overwhelming majority's answer was just do it, right? It's like the Nike mm -hmm. slogan, just do it, yep, just, just pull the it. trigger, right? It's And so it's like the opposite of procrastination. And so I guess I'm curious in, in, in our talk today, like how can the 12-week year help people to just do it? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. That's what the book tries to do, right? That's the whole thesis of the book, I suppose. And to the extent that it's successful, it's because we start with vision and and the vision isn't about just business. It's a life vision. And we want people to think through this sort of aspirational vision. What is your life about? What's a life well lived? You know, as you, as you look on, on the time that you have and, and the capabilities that you have, um, what, what's, what are you capable of in life? And really challenging yourself to stretch so that um, you don't limit your results first in your head. Because if you don't think you can do things, if you feel like you can't accomplish you know, great things like other folks you see around you accomplishing, then you never will. The first place you're going to lose is, is, is in your head. So with, with vision, you want to make people uncomfortable. So you want to have a vision that scares you, that you don't know how to get there. If you, if you have a vision that you can kind of immediately see how you could get there, it's probably not big enough for you. It, it, it should cause you to not know how, right? And there's a great book called The Answer to How is Yes by Peter Block. And it talks about that kind of um, how, the question how is a defense against the action. Because you typically don't know how, and so you know when when, you, when somebody's thinking of a big idea at work, right, and they're they're sharing something at the at the, at the conference table or at some brainstorming session, and somebody says, "Well, wait, well, let's be practical. How would we do that?" Really, good? and then immediately it deflates the idea, and everybody kind of backs away from it because nobody knows how. So, how is a defense against the action? And what I would say is is don't ask that question as your vision. Don't 
just what would be great if you were if you were fully capable to do anything that you ever wanted to do what would you what would you have in your vision and start from that and then you should feel a little bit afraid because you don't know how and your amygdala fires up and says wait a minute you know danger danger you don't know how to do this. And so a little fear kind of means that, Hey, I understand that I can't just do business as usual or get there. I'm going to have to be creative. I'm going to have to be original. And I'm going to have to be kind of fierce um, in what I do. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I, and I, I really want to go deeper on that, that comment of vision. Cause it's something that I, that I deal with. I mean, but you just hit so many things. You talked about the amygdala firing and uh, you know, that voice that says danger, danger, like that's the voice that we're talking about that stops us from doing these things that we really want to do. The other thing I heard you say is that how is not part of the vision. Right. And so I just wonder if like, if we could just talk a little bit, one, one, one level deeper on really this idea of vision and, and what it is, because I also think, and I'm, I'm admit, like I'm, I'm personally guilty of this. A lot of times when I think about vision, I, as a leader, I think about like what my vision should be versus what my vision really is. And you get into that really well in uncommon accountability, which we can talk about as well. But like, can you just talk a little bit about that? Like, you know, really listening to, you know, and, and maybe dare I say, is that voice that calls us to adventure and vision are they are they connected? I think I think they are. Um, you know, that's a that's a really good question about about this this concept of, of should and visioning is is a process that doesn't. You know, I don't think you just do it once because there's a lot of a lot of things that you think about when you think about vision. And some of it's what I should do, right? And and so you know we've we've all been raised by families that have had opinions about things and what's good and what's you know what's right and all that and it's not that that's wrong it's just that you know, we, we kind of buy into somebody else's perspective and all of us are wrong about everything i mean there, nobody's right about everything you know what i mean and there's this kind of not that you, we don't know truth but but there's parts of the truth that we got wrong right i mean there's nothing that that we're all perfect perfectly knowledgeable about you know i'm i'm, I'm a christian i, I tell people that um and i'm not one that you would call perfect <laughs> by a long shot so um it, it's it's that we we have we grow up with people though that that form us and, and we we kind of bring on board these things that we've been taught and then those things those shoulds kind of come in and, and it's hard i think to let go of that when you vision because even when i'm visioning i'm thinking about things that other people have done and i say well i'd like that and, and that, there's nothing wrong with that but you know what really what I relate to what what's really important. Maybe it's completely not those things. Maybe it's something entirely different and getting in touch with that um, is, is scary sometimes, but it's also the stuff that motivates you to take action. And the thing is like, you got into this in uncommon accountability where, where you talk about vision. And um, you know, I think like, again, from that standpoint of should, and I'm, I'm completely guilty of this, like thinking that like my vision should be something that everybody wants to rally around. And it's like, my vision is this thing that everybody goes, Oh yes, we want to do that. Like we're going to, we're going to fall in. And like, you talk about this in uncommon accountability. Like that's not really, that's not really the point. It's about helping everybody else understand their own vision and then creating a vision that helps everybody accomplish their own vision. Yeah. It's a, it's a dance. Yeah. It's a dance. I think because as a leader, um, you know, as the owner of a business who's, who's taken the risks in the business, who's, who's built this thing out of his own brain, right? He created it out of whole cloth or she, sorry about that. But, but regardless, that, that vision of the leader is, is a, um, a vision that kind of 
that can be what the right word is here, but but it's something that you want to share with your team. You don't necessarily want to let it go and, and put a different vision in, right? So as a leader, when you create the vision, you want to hear what people have to say. You want to hear their dreams and desires and modify your vision to 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 incorporate that when it makes sense. And yet where where vision really goes with an individual who's part of a team like that is the question, does my life purpose and my life vision fit within the context of this? Do I see myself making progress towards what I want out of life if I stay here and I help this this team to fulfill their vision, right? And a lot of times there's a lot of overlap, but we're just, we're not, we're not really paying attention to that. And so we're, we're unaware of the overlap. So what, what a lot of leaders would tell me is that I don't want my team members to have a vision because what if it's different than working here, <laughs> right? And uh, the reality is, is that if, if they really do have that underlying vision, even if they're unconscious of it, they're only going to be half-hearted anyway. Yes. And but they might stay be half-hearted for a long time, and that's not good for them. So really, creating clarity between what we're doing as a company and what's important to me in my life, and making sure that that's a fit, it, it, it's really an important part of this. So yes, your vision is is your vision, their vision is their vision, but you want to align, help people see how your vision helps them accomplish their visions, and that's the yes. key. That's a trick, I think. Yes. And I think that's something that you guys talk about on Aligned Life Pro, right? It's, yeah. a, it's really about like bringing it all into alignment and then in organizations, aligning right. each each other's values. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. So, all right. And then I, I guess I just, I would be remiss if I didn't mention like part of like, I one of my recent adventures was uh, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and, and the way that that happened, the way that that came about was years ago, printing a picture of Mount Kilimanjaro and sticking it on a vision board, like without mm-hmm. any, you know, preconceived notions of how it was just, you know, a board full of pictures and, you know, literally was one of those things where like the opportunity arose, I looked at the vision board and it was like a clear yes for me because it was there. And so to your point, like, that's just an example of what you're teaching. Like, I didn't know how, yes, it scared me, but I had that picture looking at me every day. And when the opportunity finally came, I said, yes. And then, yeah. we, and then we figured it out from there. And the cool thing is, is I used the 12-week year to then create the plan for, okay, I got to train. I got to book my flights. I got to book my hotel. So like, so what are the next steps then for taking that vision and, and, and executing them using the 12-week year? That's a great question. So um, <clears throat> I love vision boards because you can share them with other people. And one of the things that can happen with that, that process of sharing, all of a sudden now ownership is shared too. So you get, you get a little bit more um, support and, and prodding from, from the people around you. But <clears throat> having the vision is, is important because it, it lets you then bring that vision into the present. <clears throat> so what we try to do is to take the, the long-term aspirational vision and then create a three-year vision that's more specific and measurable. So if I want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, and, I'm, and I, I'm, you probably want to do it sooner than that, let's just say, say it was five years out or 10 years out, you want to set a goal for where you need to be three years from now, you know, from a, from a, you know, what kind of money you have to have saved up, what kind of shape do you have to be in, what kind of um, other climbs have you have accomplished so you're, you're prepared for it? You know, what are the things you have to do so that, you know, you're financially set, you're physically set and, you know, logistically you're set, right. To, to make it happen. We want to bring that aspirational future into the three year more specific future. And then we take that to create 12 week targets and then uh, 12 month targets. And then we take that to create 12 week plans. And so, what, what ends up happening is that I want to tie my plan directly to that vision. Not all things are going to be worked on every 12 weeks. You're not going to do everything in your vision, mm-hmm. but you're going to be intentional about what has to happen now to be on track with that vision. So that, that goal then becomes 
um, a representation of the progress you want to make to, towards what really matters to you. So we want to connect what you do each day to what matters to you in life. And you do that through the plan. And so, um, you know, one of the things I was just reading, and I guess it's sort of intuitive, but when you think about a goal like that, like Mount Kilimanjaro, you're more likely to hit it if then the next thing you think about is what might get in the way. So how is not, is not a bad word. It just, we ask it too soon. So we, the first question around visioning is what if, what would be different for me if I could climb Mount Kilimanjaro? What would, how would I feel? What, what kind of psychological outcome would that be for me? What does that enable in other areas of my life? So what if I could do it? And that's where you, you kind of open up the door a little bit to the possibility, right? You don't ask how, but eventually though, you've got to shift from what if to how, because you've got a plan, you got to execute. So what if is the visioning question? How is the planning question? It's not a bad question. We just ask it too soon. And so, that's where, where we lay out the, the connection between what we do and what we want. And those tactics then, which are going to be work, um, and we, we tend to avoid work because it's uncomfortable and we'd rather be comfortable. We're wired for comfort. So we want to see those tactics tied to that goal, tied to that vision so that we, it looks like climbing Mount Kilimanjaro when I go and I do this meeting with a client because I know I need to do that in order to fund what I have to fund in order to make that trip happen. So in the back of my mind, when I'm scheduling that appointment, I'm not saying, okay, I really would rather just veg out. It's more, you know, I, I got to get this done because it's part of what I got to do to get to where I want to be. And it connects to stuff. I don't know if I answered your question. I tend to. No, it totally does. And it brought up another, another th thought for me, which is really was just a word, but, but decision, right? A, mm -hmm. and, and specifically a decision. So like what I was hearing is kind of like, this is my interpretation. I want, I want your help here. If, if you can, if you, so like you've got the vision and then you've got the plan, but to me, there's a decision that has to happen yeah, okay. before yeah. the how, Yeah. right? Because if you haven't made up your mind, then the how is going to kind of make you wishy-washy, right? Yeah. So, so it, it's an interesting, it's sort of iterative a little bit, I think um, in that, you know, I, I want to do a lot of things. Um, and I want to ask you a question. Are some things impossible? Ooh, that's a, that's a great question for this podcast. <laughs> um, you know, my ego says, yes, some things are impossible. Yeah, there are some things that are impossible. Um, one of our clients was an NCAA basketball player, used up all four years of his, of his eligibility in the NCAA. And, but he always wanted to play college basketball. And so, but that was impossible to him. He, he was part of his vision. So I would just love to go back and play one more game in college. You know, that's my vision, but I can't, you know, I can't do stuff. I mean, you could, I guess you could assume another identity and, you know, but um, <laughs> you know, the fact of the matter is it, it, that practice for all practical purposes was impossible for him. So we were just talking around that. So what, what is it you could do to kind of mimic that? You could get into coaching, you could, you could, you know, join the city league, whatever. Um, he played one year, so I pro ball in Europe. So it wasn't that he didn't play basketball after college. It was just that um, he couldn't do that, but he, but he could figure out what the parts of what was, ama what was amazing about that vision and try to put that into his life. Right. I, I'd like to joke that I could never be the Sultan of Brunei, even if I really, really wanted to be the Sultan of Brunei. I can't because I'm one of the family and you know, all that stuff. So um, maybe I can do some of the stuff though, that, being the Sultan of Brunei represents in people's lives, right? So, so you know, maybe I could dress up in robes and walk around telling my wife and children what to do all day, right? But um, I don't know if that's what the Sultan does, but I assume he can do that if he wants. And, um, you know, and I tell, I joke people, that there's probably less chance my wife's going to let that happen than me being the Sultan. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's, there's a kid, but there's things that, that you may not be able to do exactly what you said you wanted to do, but there's things that 
that that represents for you that you can do. So it's really kind of being flexible a little bit. Mm -hmm. The other thing though, which you said was really interesting, which was um, that because some things are impossible, sometimes you don't know in the beginning. And this word impossible is, is, a, is, a, is the first barrier to getting anything done. And we have this process to move from impossible to possible to probable to given, mm. um, provided that it's, you know, that it's in the realm of, of the degrees of, of freedom that you have. Um, but the, the part about the commitment, unless you count the costs, it's hard to commit to something. So if I want to commit um, to losing 10 pounds, I have to think about, okay, what does that mean? What are the barriers I've got to overcome in order to make that happen? And so I've got to, I've got to eat better. I've got to exercise. I've got to, I've got to say no to drinking wine. I've got to say, you know, and, and in the moment, if I haven't already decided mentally to pay those prices, um, I might, I might not want to pay them. Yes. So what we recommend is that you, you look at the work and then decide, am I going to commit to this or not? And so there's a piece of that around commitment. It, there's nothing wrong with having it in your vision. But if you're going to commit to something, it means that you're willing to pay the price to get there. And it's important to consider the price. In fact, research shows that if you look at the barriers that are going to get in the way, then um, you're more likely to hit your goal than if you just assume it's going to be smooth sailing and you don't confront them. Yeah. Okay. That, nah, that's super helpful because so I, what I, the word I heard you say was iterative because it is. I mean, at some point, you've got to make that choice, that decision, like I'm, do, I'm doing this. I've made up my mind. But there is a certain amount of information that you need to be able to make that choice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And th and that makes good sense. And I just thinking back to my Kilimanjaro experience, like there were kind of two key things for me. I mean, it was, it was when I said, I, I said the word yes to our friend, Carl Miller, who was, who invited me and who I went on that trip with. Um, but then of course it was also like paying the deposit and booking the flights, right? Like these are like milestones. Like when you do these things, like everything else has to happen. But to your point, you kind of have to know what those things are before you can say yes. Yeah. So that's really helpful. I love that. I love that you talked about it being an iterative process. Yeah. Because every yes has a lot of trailing no's, right? You got, you got to say yes to this. I mean, you have to say no to something else. Yes. And are you willing to say no to that? Yeah. Okay. So part of the 12 week year is the weekly um, the accountability, right? And then you, you mm. explore that even further in your, your newest book, which is awesome. It really made me think uncommon accountability. So like, how do we bring accountability into all of this? Um, a lot of people that we run into on a daily basis in business um, value accountability. And they see it as a, as a core value that's, that's, that's a key success driver. And so most people you know, want to be more accountable. Um, leaders want to create more accountability in their teams. The problem is um, the way that they go about, it, creating, about creating accountability is the opposite of the best way to create accountability in our perspective, in our view. Um, because what ends up happening is when we talk about accountability, we, we use the terminology, hold somebody accountable a lot of times. I want to hold my team accountable. What that really means, though, when, when, you, when you think about that, what it really means is that you're going to watch what people do and evaluate the results. And then based upon what they do and what the results that they get are, I'm going to apply consequences. And typically, they're negative consequences for falling short. I know you also have positive consequences that people apply as well. But but where, where we hear the word, I'm going to hold you accountable, yeah. it's not one of those warm and fuzzy feelings. It yes. creates a lot of anxiety. So the view about accountability is it has to be forced as a leader on somebody else. I have to force accountability through consequences. And um, what that does, though, is that our view of accountability is accountability is a, a decision, a personal decision 
to take ownership of some outcome and then be willing to do what it takes to make that outcome occur, right? So I take accountability and I take an ownership. That's me. That's a decision I make inside of me. It's a choice that I made. My boss can't make it for me. Um, he can he can put the carrot and the stick out in front of me and get me to perform in a certain way um, because I want those consequences to be positive and I'll do that. But I haven't taken ownership. And as soon as you take those consequences away, research shows that performance drops back, which means you don't have ownership. You've got consequence avoidance and consequence, you know, seeking or whatever. Yeah. So um, that that is a temporary fix and requires a leader. I, I'm getting really technical here. So no, it's so, great. But it requires a leader to pay attention. You've got to watch when people are are performing well. You've got to watch the behaviors and you've got to watch them consistently because for consequences to be most important, they have to be seen as negative, they have to be immediate, and they have to be seen as certain, or they have to be positive, immediate, and certain. So as a leader, what that means is you've got to install measurement systems, which are all flawed, but to some degree, they can help you see what people are doing. But you've got to, you've got to pay attention, which limits the span of control you have as a leader, because if you're applying consequences, then you've got to make sure you're, you're being, you know, you're using picks and nicks to help people get, you know, the, their job done. And um, that's one part of it. The other part of it is that a lot of the negative consequences create emotional damage or relationship damage between the leader and the individual. Um, they create fear and, and resentment sometimes. And so as a leader, if I said, here's what I want you to do, here's the action I want, here's the result I want. And then they take that action and it doesn't, doesn't happen. You know, the, the outcome you promised them doesn't happen. Then they have this sense of entitlement. I did what you said and it, you know, the result didn't happen. So you create this entitlement mindset, an avoidance mindset because they don't want to get punished. And it's just, they blame other people because they don't want to be held accountable. And, you, and that's not everybody. Some people are going to be accountable regardless of what the leader does. They're just, they're just, they already, they got it. They're going that path. But for most people, they, they experience this consequence model and they want nothing to do with accountability. One last thing I'll say is that when I try to do that as a leader, I, I create this, this relationship with my team that's uncomfortable. And when I leave very often performance drops off. So the way to see if you have a consequence based accountability model is when you take a vacation, do you have to call back and to make sure people are doing their jobs? Is performance drop off when you're not there? And so your vacation is really a workation because you're kind of checking in, you know, for 30 minutes, an hour every day to make sure things are getting done. Because if that's what you're doing, um, more than likely is you don't have an ownership culture. You've got a consequence culture and it's, and it's, you're tied to the mass there. You can't leave. Yeah. That, that was a huge, huge takeaway when I read that book, just like, you know, at, it's always bothered me that, that that phrase, someone needs to be held accountable. Like it is, it's just, it's finger pointing, it's blaming, it's, it's, you know, somebody needs to be punished is essentially what's being said there. And so you guys kind of flip the script on that and talk about rather than holding people accountable, holding people capable. Uh, yeah. And, and I think that um, from a context of, you know, listening to that voice that calls us to adventure, how do we hold ourselves and others capable of going and doing these things that we truly want to do with our lives? Yeah, I think I think it starts with um, what's important to you, right? And what's important to your team members and really, really working with them to see what they want, you know, and you were talking about vision earlier. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's an important conversation to have because I'm not going to own what you want. I got to own what I want. Mm -hmm. And so digging into them and helping them think through what it is they want um, and, and taking ownership of what they want. And then as a leader coming up alongside them and confronting them with their choices, not, not with consequences, but you know, if somebody's doing well, you'd say, Hey, what, what kind of, what kind of choice made that happen in, in, in the environment going forward? How can you do that more often if you want to do it? And then 
on the other on the flip side, if they fell short, is confronting them with the choices they made that created that outcome. Not not punishing the outcome, but asking them about what the choices were, what, what other choices they have, and where where we go with that is that I don't um, I don't want people to hear me say that our view of accountability is just kind of soft and gentle, do what you want and drift along. And I'm willing to suffer with not, you guys not performing for my pay that I'm giving you. Cause I'm, I'm, this is quid pro quo, right? I'm giving you a paycheck in a sense, you're earning a paycheck from me for what I need you to do for me. So this is this exchange of value. So we're not saying don't pay attention to that exchange of value, but what we want to do is, is really challenge them. If they haven't taken ownership of being where they are and they haven't taken ownership of, of, of being successful here, then they probably, What's best for them is to not stay here. Not a bad person, just not a good fit. And so we don't. We're not namby pamby with, with with um with with uh, confronting people with their choices, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's that it's not it's not punishing them or, or or rewarding them. It's letting them decide what they want to do, and then they reap the natural rewards of their actions. They could they could miss out on the bonus. They could they could lose some some revenue, but it's because they made a choice to do that. Yeah. Right. So it's not you doing that to them because a lot of times they'll blame you. They think you've made a choice just because you're mad at them. You don't like them or you, or you don't, you're going to punish them. And, you know, when you punish somebody, it assumes that they intentionally failed. They intentionally did something wrong yeah. to, to fail. Well, otherwise, why would you punish them? Right. Yeah. It's like a kid who didn't get a math problem right. And then he gets whacked by the teacher. Well, he's not going to like math, but, but if you work with him in terms of how to solve the math problem, then, and then he gets his own intrinsic rewards, he's going to enjoy math. So, or she, so that, that leadership thing is, is a big mess. And I, I it took us a, a, a long time to write that book. I don't want to bore your audience, but there's a lot of complexity to it, but it's really boils on one simple thing. People have choice confronted with their choices. People have choice. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then like, I mean, in this, in this whole a piece with accountability and, and it's, it's all of life, but you know, I'm, I'm using it in the context of going on adventures here, but like, you know, accountability typically does involve, like we can hold, we can, we can be accountable or we can hold ourselves capable, right? We can also hold right. other people capable, but there's kind of this u- unique thing about like being human that we tend to be better together, right? And yeah. accountability works better when you have somebody else, right? So like yes. in terms of an adventure, you know, if if you and I say, hey, let's go do an adventure, you know, let's go, you know, do a backpacking trip in Europe and you and I get fired up and, you know, we get excited about this and we put this thing together as a team, like we're more likely to do that than if I just say that's something I want to do and I take it upon myself to, to try to plan it on my own. So like, what is like, how does, how does that fit into like creating a plan and, and getting after your dreams and, you know, involving another person as opposed to trying to do it on your own? That's a really good question. Um, one of the things that I think happens when you, when you do it with somebody, like you were saying, is that, um, when we work with other people towards a common goal, um, we tend to take more ownership than we would if we, if we weren't. And there's a uh, article that was written a number of years ago in fast company called change or die. And it was a uh, article that one of the things they talked about was a study that was done in medicine um, by doctors who were heart, were um, cardiologists and their, their um, patients were um, in serious shape. They were you know, likely going to die unless they changed the way they exercised and dieted. And I, I may have told you the story before. I may have read it in the book, but um, the uh, the thing is, is that you know when you're told you're going to die, that's a pretty big motivator, 
right? I don't want to die. Most people don't want to die. Um, and so when you're told you're going to die, you think that it motivates people to take the action so you avoid dying. But we're all, nobody here gets out alive, uh, as, as um, Morrison said. But the, the thing is, is that, you know, nobody wants to die soon, yeah. <laughs> you know, someday in the future. Right. And so, um, you know, that, that fear of death can be kind of motivating. But um, what they did is they looked at this, this group of heart patients, and there were two groups. One group was, had joined up with um, other peers who had also been diagnosed with the same issue with their heart. They had to change or die. Um, and those groups met together on a regular basis with the facilitator. And then another group was just kind of left on their own. And immediately after they were, all these folks were told that they were going to you know, change or die, all of them changed. But then they went back and they looked 12 months, 24 months later, and they found that um, the folks who were not part of a peer-to-peer -peer support group like that, that only 10% of them were still in their diet and exercise routines you know, 12 to 24 months later. Whereas with the other group, it was like 78%, 87%. I forget what it was, but it's very high percentage. So it was a step order, a huge, huge magnitude change. And so peer-to-peer um, work helps you to take ownership and, and, and stick with ideas longer. Even, even if there's a strong reason to do something, if you do it with a team, you're more likely to do it. And, it, and I think it's partly because we give ourselves huge passes in our head. We look at our intentions and we, we, you know, we experience the world resisting us and we kind of give ourselves these passes and excuses because you know, we know what we intend to do. But people, other people can't see our intentions. They're completely oblivious to what we were thinking and what got in the way. All they can see is what we did and what happened. Right. They can see the, the visible yeah. evidence. Of that. So I, I don't want to appear to others as if I'm not competent. I'm not a professional. I'm not, you know, um, serious about something. So I will, I'll show up even more for other people than I would show up for myself. Yeah. Um, so I think it's good to have a partner. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. I think about like marathon, half marathon training. And I think about like being in a training program. And I, I remember uh, a, a certain experience in my life when I was training with a friend and, you know, I'd wake up, it's five o'clock in the morning, it's time to go run, it's raining outside, right? And it would right. be really easy for me to just roll over and go to sleep. And, you know, I'm not going to train today. But you know what, I know my buddy is waiting at the street sign. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I'm not going to leave him hanging. Right. So yeah. as much as I don't want to go, I'm going to get out of bed and I'm going to go meet him. So, you know, I think this, this, um, this whole call has been so incredible. And I think, um, if I can, I want to kind of break it down into the three things that I heard was vision followed by creating a plan followed by accountability or, or, or having somebody or a group of people that you can hold capable and that are going to hold you capable. Yeah. So, you know, again, can kind of come back to like asking all of the guests that have been on this show, what advice do you have for people when you hear that voice that calls to you to adventure, but then you kind of experience those fears and doubts. That's sort of what this whole podcast has been today. But I guess what I would ask you is, how do we get started with all of that? People have heard all these great stories like, yeah, I want to go do an adventure. I want to go do something. I want to push myself out of my comfort zone. How do I get started? That's a great question. My dad used to tell me as a kid, do something when I was kidding at him, um, <laughs> do something, even if it's wrong. So what my advice to everybody is, is that, look, don't, don't spend too much time trying to figure out exactly how everything's going to happen. You set a goal, build out a, a plan that's pretty reasonable. It's going to be about 80% right. Um, and then just start acting, start doing the tactics and the plan. And then once you start taking action, that creates a momentum. And, you know, it, it, it's a cliche, but when you ride a bicycle, it takes a lot of energy to get it going. But once it's going, you got all that, that momentum and it, it's easier to keep going than it is to get started. So getting started is the hardest part and just do it. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's what you started this whole thing with is the Nike phrase, just do it. Yeah. Do something even it. if it's wrong. I love it. Well, I have a couple of other steps for people. They could start by reading this one right here. <laughs> yeah. um, holding up a copy of the 12-week year. And then you can move on to this one right here, Uncommon Accountability. Both are just awesome reads and uh, just pack full of tools. And I just I really appreciate all that content. Um, you know, you have, you're an author, you are a business consultant, you're an adventurer, you've had this very, very full life. And Michael, Hollywood's going to make a movie about you at some point. <laughs> and I want to know when they do, who's going to be the actor that's going to play you? Um, well, I'd like to say John Stamos, but more than likely, it's going to be um, uh, uh, John C. Riley. Um, yes, he's he's the guy that would play me. I love it, John C. Riley. <laughs> tell me, about, what is it about John C. Riley that fits for you? Um, you know, he's kind of goofy looking. He he is extremely funny, but when he's talking, you kind of wonder if he's all there. Um, you know, it's one of those things that I just like. I, I just he's. What am I, if I could hang out with anybody, it'd be, it'd be hanging out. With He's hysterical. So, I yeah. love that. Okay. What's your movie going to be called? Uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking about that and, and, I, and I guess maybe lost, but happy. Ooh, <laughs> I just kind of, yeah. Cause, cause you know, if, if I started in my journey and I had this vision about, okay, I'm going to write two books. I'm going to you know be a New York times bestselling author. I'm going to live here. I'm going to do this kind of thing. This is my week's going to be like, I would have been so far gone off of that. But um, I, I always had an innate sense of what I liked and what I didn't like. And, and I just started building more of what I liked. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I, I could have told you um, from the beginning that I would end up here, but I like being here. So I guess that's what I mean. That might be one of my favorite titles so far, Lost But Happy. I mean, this yeah. is like the journey. We're all lost, right? But yeah. that doesn't mean we have to be unhappy. Right. Like the life unfolds the way that it unfolds. I love that title. That's, that's incredible. <laughs> well, I really, really appreciate you spending time with us today. And uh, for those listening, I hope you've been inspired today as much as I have. I hope Michael's story has encouraged you to listen to that voice inside that calls you to adventure because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or you need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you could help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thank you for listening. Michael Lennington, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Scott. I appreciate it.